Ready for some word today? If you are, get your Bible out, open up your apps, and go to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Today I want to continue teaching this series called In Control. Ready for more of it? If you're new with us, you're picking up in the middle somewhere. We're not sure where the end is, but uh, you're picking up in the middle, so there's been a lot said already, but you'll be helped today as well. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age, amen. So, so what we have here is typically referred to as the Great Commission, but uh, there is inside of this Great Commission a great revelation about delegated authority. Jesus is saying here, to rephrase it, all authority's been, giving, been given to me, and so I'm giving it to you. I'm authorizing you to carry out my will in essence, to make disciples and preach the gospel and baptize and all the other things that he said in this context that are contained in other accounts like, the, like Mark 16, Acts chapter 1, and so forth. And, uh, but Jesus has delegated his authority that he retrieved um, through his redemptive work to the church. In other words, God created us in the beginning, told Adam and Eve to have dominion over all of his creation, all the work of his hands. Adam turned that over to Satan by committing high treason. Satan then became the God of this world, as Jesus called him, the ruler of this world. But through Jesus' death and resurrection and so forth, uh, he got it back, and now he authorized the church to rule and reign in life. Now, the issue of who is controlling what is very clear in most passages of Scripture. Okay, the, prince, the principles of delegated authority are not complex. They're easy to understand and implement in our lives. However, uh, there are certain scriptures and even long-standing teachings in church circles that cause some people to question their true ability to rule and reign in life. And what I mean by that is, is that if there is any time a question or a, a doubt in the middle of us taking a stand, in the middle of us pushing back against the enemy's plans, or even, even when we're praying and seeking God and asking Him to do something, if there's a question in the middle of it, that, is, that undermines faith. I understand there are many things we have questions about, but you don't have an effective prayer life until you find out the will of God and speak and pray with boldness. No fear, no question, no wondering. You actually find out the answer to your prayer before you pray, right? And so in many areas of life, that's how we must function. And again, because of some, again, longstanding teachings or certain Bible verses, people get hiccups especially if they don't see an immediate change. They don't see an immediate result. They step back and start wondering, oh, wait a minute, is, can, I, am I, can I do this? Or is this somehow under God's control? 
And if you have that thought, you just lost all confidence in what you did. So we want to, we want to remove the question so that what we do, we do intentionally and we do with boldness, with full expectation of a, of a result. All right? Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about how to do, how to do life with God and how to overcome in life. This is how these things work. Now, uh, last week, I was addressing uh, somewhat the subject of predestination and election, as spoken of in Romans chapter 8 is one place. And we basically saw very easily, we can conclude, that the Lord only predestines things for people that choose him. He doesn't predestine people to suffering and hell and so forth, but for people who choose him. And also, it's always based on his foreknowledge. In other words, it's not causative in nature. He's not determining the outcome. He hasn't already laid something out and said, you are going to do this whether you want to or not. (laughs) No, but he sees ahead. He looks into the future. He can see what decisions you and I will make for him. Having said that, there are still some Bible verses that can be misunderstood and hinder one's faith to overcome. There is a principle I always recommend when endeavoring to understand the Bible, okay? And that is that you start with what you know, you start with the verses that are plain and clear, and then move into the ones that you don't know that are more difficult to understand that are less clear in their, in their meaning. And the reason for that is you, you never want to uh, get wallowed down in confusion or darkness or lack of understanding. You want to live in the light. Light means I understand, I see, I can recognize, I understand truth. Not, uh, not the other way around. Some, you ever heard people say this? Maybe you've said this before. Uh, I just can't understand the Bible. It's just just so confusing to me. And anyone who's really gone past first grade in the Bible, you hear that and you think, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. The Bible is actually easy to understand. And the truth is, the vast majority of scriptures are not complicated. They're not confusing, they're not a mystery but there are some that are a little more difficult. Here's what we want to do. You stay with the, the plainly stated truths in Scripture. From that foundation, you start to search out and, uh, and seek out understanding of those that aren't as clear, not the other way around. Otherwise, you throw up your hands and say, I just can't understand this. Everybody with me? Here, here's another part to that. Because most of these verses are easy to understand, you never want to take the one that you don't and throw out the ones that you do. In other words, you find you found 99 verses that are pretty clear. There, you understand them. And then you find one that you don't understand. You think, ah, I just don't understand this book. <laughs> or this seems to contradict the 99. It doesn't. It's just a lack of understanding of the one. 
Okay, so whenever someone says, you know, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Slow down, slow down. That's a strong accusation against the, the inspirer of it. What is much more likely is what we think contradicts is a lack of understanding on our part. We're not seeing it. We're not understanding it. So again, stay with what's clear. And when you come across verses that you wonder, go, what does that mean? What? Understand this. There is in no chance, no circumstance, that that one verse throws out the obvious meaning of the others. Everybody with me? Okay. So I want to look at a chapter today. I'm going to teach a little bit different than I normally do. So just hold your seat, buckle up. Uh, I want to do a little bit of verse by verse in the, in the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And uh, this is a, a passage that used to really annoy me. I actually, there's been a lot of times when I just wished it wasn't there. <laughs> Romans 8, amazing. Romans 10, I love that, that chapter. Romans 9, is that an oops? I mean, why is that? <laughs> but what it came from, just a, just a lack of understanding, when you see the whole thing as one group, you think, this makes sense. This is not a, this is not a, a shift in topic. It's not a different meaning. It has to agree with the rest of the book, right? And so, uh, in this passage, there's two illustrations. One is about Jacob and Esau. The other one is about Pharaoh and Moses, all right? If you already know about them, then you're better off today. If you don't know about any of those dudes, uh, you can read about them later. I'm not gonna give their whole background. Book of Genesis, chapter 25, the book of Exodus, we'll talk about Moses and Pharaoh, and you can read the whole thing. But this chapter comments on those events kind of with an understanding that we know who they are, all right? Uh, in Romans chapter nine, let's begin in verse 10. It reads, and not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, now let me just real quick, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Remember, Abraham was given a promise. You're gonna be the father of many nations. He was old. His wife was old. She was barren. Long story. They had a miraculous child. It's Isaac. Isaac grew up, found Rebekah. Oh. And, uh, and, and they had twin boys, ja uh, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Esau came out first. Jacob came out holding on to Esau's heel. Okay, but in this situation, that's what we're addressing because God chose Jacob to do some things, which was a little bit contrary to the natural way of things, meaning the firstborn was often given special rights and, and blessings, and Esau was, he just gave them up. But again, now verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now you understand already why we don't like Romans 9. <laughs> okay, we like it again. I mean, I like it again. I hope you like it when we're done. Okay, but the Lord chose Jacob before he was born. Basically, it's saying, therefore, it wasn't according to any effort on his part that he was chosen. This was simply the election of God. 
You might recall at the beginning of this series, I was really hammering the statement, God is in control. And I said, you have to define that. You have to put parameters on that and, and, and define the context in which a statement like that is made. Because there are many, many things he is not in control of. We are. All right? This is one of those things. I'm, o- I'm totally okay with saying God is in control of this. What? The calling. The Lord chose Jacob. He did. That was up to him. It was his prerogative to choose him to carry out the you know, the blessing line of Abraham and be a part of that lineage, all right? Um, Amen. He still does that today, by the way. He still chooses people. He chooses people he wants to use for certain purposes, and that's up to him. Our job would just simply be to honor it. Sometimes he calls certain people, and it doesn't even make sense to us why he does it. Sometimes it's you, and you look in the mirror and say, why, God? (laughs) Why would you choose me to do something? There's a whole bunch of people you could have chosen that would be better at this, but he knows, and he chooses. Sometimes you look at other people and say, I don't get that at all. (laughs) Why would he use them? (laughs) And And the sad thing is we have to learn to, like, accept it, sometimes setting aside personal opinions and so forth and say, this is the Lord's choice. The grace of God is obviously there. There's fruit that abounds. I don't know why the Lord did this, but I'm going to honor that. So he does do that. We know, in essence, all of this will circle back around to, to, to the foreknowledge of God. He sees, and he understands more than we know about it, but he still chooses people today. Now, when it comes to Jacob and Esau, how many know God didn't force their choices? He didn't make them act the way they did. Um, uh, he did see ahead with foreknowledge he could see. Jacob will respond to me this way. Isaac or Esau will respond to me this way. And if you know some of the story, uh, Esau had that birthright and he totally gave it up for a bowl of soup one day because he was hungry and he gave up something of great value. That is always spoken evil of in the rest of scripture, how he did that. Esau, man, a wicked man to do that. He didn't value what the, what the Lord said was valuable. He said, I'm hungry, I want soup, I want it now. That's called, I have an immediate need for something, I have an immediate hunger pain, and I'm gonna give up something precious just to satisfy my hunger right now. I mean, that principle still holds true when we have to give up things for an immediate self-gratification, and we give up what's more important bad choice. But Esau was that kind of guy who did that, and, uh, and he hated his brother and, and so forth. But I, I want you to notice here that Esau was not chosen to be cursed. He experienced in his life the, the results of his own choices. God didn't choose him for that. God did choose Jacob, his prerogative to do so, and again, probably in part based on his foreknowledge of how, of how he would respond. But uh, Esau himself, as an individual, the scripture doesn't say that he was hated. Let, 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 me, let, me, uh, let, let me illustrate this way. Remember, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? And that just kind of annoys a lot of us. It's like, eh, I don't like that word hate. Some say, I mean, 
the Greek word could also be translated loved less. You'll see that in Strong's Concordance. Um, nevertheless, it's, it, it's still there. But he didn't say that while they were in the womb. The Lord didn't look at, you know, baby Jacob and Esau. Not that I have a womb. Unless you watch the news, they might. They think dudes do. <laughs> Sorry, but the CDC doesn't know the difference between a boy and a girl. <laughs> but that's not my topic today. Um, God didn't look at Jacob and Esau in the womb and, uh, and say, I love this one and hate this one. That scripture actually comes from the book of Malachi, and that was hundreds and hundreds of years after they had already lived their lives and were gone. The Jacob have I loved, Esau and I have I hated, okay? That was after they had already done their things. And you'll also notice that it wasn't ever spoken of Esau as an individual, as a person. Just like, you know, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. He had that little wrestling match with the angel, came out a different guy, came out with a changed name, Israel. His, his name is Israel. Now, how many know the nation is called Israel? Still is to this day, right? Esau also had a, uh, a lineage, uh, uh, ancestors, and that was the nation of Edom, okay? So when, when saying Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, it could be easily just speaking of their, uh, those nations. And that was because of the choices that they had made um, and that was how God was describing this when he spoke it to, to Malachi, Malachi cha, cha, chapter one, okay? And so that's Jacob and Esau. We see how that worked. What about Moses and Pharaoh? There are a few more verses along uh, these lines with them. Again, Romans nine and then verse 14 goes on to say, what shall we say then? Is, is there unrighteousness with God Certainly not. So the statement, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Immediately might cause some to accuse God. Well, if you loved him and hated him, then you're the, you're the unrighteous one. And Paul writes here, certainly not. But understand that God could call to account anyone at any time without being unjust. Our choices are what they are, and anything that we have done according to our free, free will, he would be justified to say, accounts due right now. He would not be unjust to do that, being the righteous one and us making the choices that we make, including Jacob and Esau. He goes on to say in 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so the Lord is then totally within his rights to show mercy to whomever he wills. Well, who does he, who does he will to, to show mercy? Let's upgrade this into, into the new covenant and so forth. How about anyone who calls on the name of the Lord? How about anyone who believes on Jesus? How about anyone who... Who, who, who seeks after him. To, any, to anyone who calls upon him, he will in no way cast out. 
Okay, so who does the Lord will to show mercy? But it is his prerogative. He can do this. He can show mercy to, to anyone. And we understand by the rest of the book, in fact, the very next chapter, how that works and who he does show mercy to. Nevertheless, I would, I would grant that there are, there are times when it seems unknown to us why certain people get blessed or helped or set free and we look at others and they didn't apparently get that same perk, okay? One example is if you read the book of John chapter five in Jesus' ministry, he went to a place called the Pools of Bethesda or the Pool of Bethesda. They had five porches, okay, of sick people. They're people all messed up and they're all just hanging out in these five porches and you can read about why they, why they were there and all that. But Jesus went in there one day, and he speaks to one person. He was crippled. He was lame. He was sick for 38 years. He talks to that guy about being healed. All the guy does is complain, make excuses why he's not. So he, he's not in faith. He didn't say, Lord, just let me touch the hem of your garment, and I'll be healed. There was no faith like you see in other people. But Jesus walks in there and tells them to get up, and they walk out. All those other people didn't even get touched. One person did. And it's, it's okay for us to wonder, why did that guy get that? Why did he? Now, now honestly, we don't know the answer. We don't know the full scope of what God knew and what he saw and who prayed ahead of time, what else was involved in that situation and why that one guy got healed that day. We, we do know this, that healing was available for all the rest of them too. I mean, whatever one person gets through gifts of the spirit like that, anyone can have by faith. It's like I say, you know, it's like the samples at Costco. You know, you can go get a sample, but anyone can go in there and buy the box. Of, of, of 83 servings, right? <laughs> Anyone can, the things of God, all the promises are to, are to us, yes, and in him, amen, right? Uh, they're available to all, but that situation, we just know this. Jesus taught in that same chapter, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what he says. So the Father's told him, go in there and get that guy. Bring him out of here. The Lord can do that. We have that in here all the time. And I don't always understand why. It's not, it's not according to my, my choosing, but the Lord will call certain people out or minister healing or, or answers to certain people. And not everyone gets, gets it that way. It's available to all, but they don't all get it that way. Maybe some of it is this. He'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy and have compassion on whomever he will have compassion. And we should just thank him for it. Amen but we know he'll have mercy on anyone who repents. He'll be compassionate to whoever, whoever calls on him. And so, um, again, there's probably more to it than we know, uh, but it doesn't say here that the Lord curses whomever he chooses. That's not what that, he'll have mercy and have compassion, but it's not saying, and, and some people I just don't like. They're, they just rub me the wrong way. <laughs> so I just gonna curse whoever I wanna curse. No, that's, that, that's certainly not what that, what that scripture says. And no one has ever come under God's judgment unjustly. He has never been unjust towards anyone. That we can be sure. Verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, 
nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's the simple gospel right there. That's the grace of God. How many know we're not saved because we deserved it? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the righteousness of God in Christ because I earned it. I was good enough to go to heaven. No, it is about him who shows mercy. It is not about my works or my, my deservedness. It is about his blessings and salvation coming by grace. It's an act of his mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Okay, so let's, let's think about Pharaoh for a moment. I want you to notice what the verse said. He raised up Pharaoh. That is different than God creating Pharaoh to do wrong. It didn't say God saw Pharaoh in the womb and said, well, watch what I do to him. I'm totally going to mess him up. No, he could see in advance how Pharaoh would respond to him. And he chose for his purposes to take him and put him in a position. Does, does God even use sometimes ungodly people? He certainly does. He certainly does. And that's kind of out of our realm, out of our, uh, our deciding but he certainly does sometimes use ungodly people for things. And he raised up Pharaoh to be used for his glory. But he, but he didn't choose to make Pharaoh the way he was. Pharaoh made his own choices. Okay, He's the one who rebelled against God. He's the one who, who became the person that he was. And, and uh, understand this. God is not taking righteous people and making them unrighteous. You don't, have, you don't have a picture anywhere in Scripture of someone seeking after God, seeking to do His will, seeking to follow His plan, and the Lord says, watch this, I'm going to harden them. I'm going to turn them against me so I can use them in some kind of mysterious way that makes everybody question my sanity. <laughs> no. People who call on Him, He's there ready to receive. So Pharaoh was a certain way. He did use him. In fact, the scriptures tell us over in the book of Exodus, you can read in chapter 8 and, and chapter 9, that he hardened his heart again and again. God would speak. Moses would bring him a message, let my people go. That, that's a, and Pharaoh would harden his heart against God. And so when you see something said about God hardening him, that's only ba him basically giving Pharaoh what he wanted. He's enforcing his decision. He's saying, you want that? You can have it. By the way, that still works today. You get what you want. In other words, God will honor our, our hearts, our choices, our decision. You seek after him, I tell you, he's willing and ready and waiting for you to lift you to make something great of your life. But if you harden your heart towards him, he'll let you do that. Sometimes that's not good, right? We wish he would not let us, but he will. No one goes to heaven that doesn't want to. No God-hater is going to be forced into eternity with God in heaven. Hallelujah. And so, uh, again, what about this, this hardening? Again, we can see that it was just God enforcing his decision. I think of it sometimes, the old uh, illustration of, of clay and butter, I mean, no, the sun melts the butter and hardens the clay. It's not that the sun is bad. 
It's not the, that the sun is inherently evil, but it does, has a different effect on different elements. Just like God's grace and God's word, he's things speaking to us has a different effect upon the condition of our heart. I don't want to be the one who hardens against him, but the one who melts, if you will, before him. Amen. Verse 19, he goes on to say, you will, say, you will then say, say to me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Okay. Now, I want you to notice the language used there. He said, so then you will say to me. In other words, he's basically saying, giving their opposition and saying, you're going to say, he's not saying this. This is not a summation of everything he's teaching. He said, you might say this to me, and I'm going to tell you why that's a wrong question. It's kind of like in chapter 6, he's, he said, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Shall we then say, well, whatever we are, it's just the will of God. No, that's not, that's not the right summation of this. This argument that Paul is, is refuting is not the correct interpretation, interpretation of what he said, okay? He knew that someone would be interpreting this in the wrong way, his teaching on grace and advocating sin. So he just puts it out there for him and then basically refutes it, okay? Verse 20 goes on to say, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? In other words, you've got a bad attitude, you just, you just know it all, this self-righteous attitude. Um, he said, uh, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and, and another for dishonor? Now, again, that could be on face value a little bit confusing. Think, oh, yeah, okay, he made me for dishonor. Hold on, he is referencing a passage in Jeremiah that they knew about. Okay, this is common. He's using something that we just read it and think, what's he talking about? They knew, and you can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 18, how the prophet was sent to this potter basically to learn a lesson, and the potter had this clay. He started to make something out of it, but what happened was the clay was marred, or you could say spoiled, and what the potter did is he had this, this imperfect clay, and instead of just discarding it, he decided to make something out of it anyway, something useful. And in essence, that's what the Lord is, is, is saying here. And he went on to talk to, in Jeremiah there again, about the nations and how if they would turn towards him, he would change in his plans for them. Okay? But it's similar to what we are. Many times the Lord comes into us or we respond to him and we call on the name of the Lord. He works in our lives, but he is dealing with some messed up clay. In other words, our choices, the decisions we've made, the, the places we've been, we're not exactly a fresh lump of awesomeness, right? In other words, his highest and best may have been influenced by our previous choices, I don't mean for all eternity, but I mean for the here and now. And he doesn't want to just discard us. Even people who reject him, he doesn't want to just discard them. He's looking and saying, what can I still do in them? He's patient. He wants to work in us. If you feel unusable and, 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 and you could never be what you, you know, maybe could have been if you made some better choices, I tell you, uh, look up. 
Because he's able to do something with your life that'll still be of high value and use to him. And so he's not just taking awesome clay and saying, I'm going to make something ugly out of this one. And I'm going to make something pretty out of this one. It's him making something useful out of all of us that will yield to him. Praise God. And really, when you read the rest of that in there in, in Jeremiah, you find that our choices, our response to the word of the Lord determines what he does next. It's not just a matter of everything is already predetermined and we have no choice in the matter. We're just that lump of clay and we don't have any determination in what kind of outcomes are, are going to come about in our lives. All right, let's finish. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom are called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Can I, can I show you this? All of this chapter is primarily him discussing the Jews, God's chosen covenant people, being rejected and the Gentiles or non-Jews coming in because they're accepting the gospel and the Jews were rejecting Jesus. So that's the context of this. Say, who are these vessels prepared for wrath? Well, in the context, it was the Jews that were rejecting the Savior. Okay, who's prepared for glory? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Amen. That's just a few verses later, by the way, in Romans chapter 10, talks about salvation. And whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is the whosoever truly a whosoever? Or is it, well, this is whosoever, but it's not you, because you're a vessel of wrath. No, whoever calls on him is a vessel of mercy. Does that make sense? Whoever, you're prepared for glory. He saw that you would ahead of time. He knew you would say yes. And he prepared you for glory, for wonderful things. Those who receive the Lord are vessels of mercy. Those who reject him would be a vessel unto wrath, prepared for destruction. But I tell you, God is patient. That's what he's saying. He endures people's funkiness. I think that's in the Greek. Uh, <laughs> It's my, my translation. He endures some of our goofiness and, you know, selfishness and wrong choices. And we have, we're earthly minded instead of seeking him. He endures so much of this nonsense because he loves us and wants us to respond positively to his grace. And again, all this goes back to God's foreknowledge and him giving people whatever they choose. Amen. Hallelujah. And a major theme in this whole book, the book of Romans, if you know it very well, the whole book, kind of a general theme, is how we're saved by grace and not by the works of the law, which debunks all religions, not just Judaism, rejecting the Savior, but all religions are based on works. Salvation is based on the grace of God. But the grace of God still must be received. God is gracious towards all. He loves every. The grace of God is like the ocean, overwhelming in its abundance. You could never exhaust it. 
but we still must say, I believe in your grace. I accept your free gifts, your kindness, and your mercy towards me. The moment we do, come on, vessels of glory, here we are. We're entering into what he prepared for us. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, God is so good. Now, I'm going to come back next time, and we'll get back into the practical application of our delegated authority. I don't want there to be any hiccups. Never pause for a moment. If something doesn't instantly change or you don't see results instantly, start where you start entertaining, maybe I can't, or maybe this is predetermined by God and I'm unable to influence the situation. No, no, no. There's not a contradiction in that chapter. It's a constant flow. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your gracious kindness towards all.